1: Hi everyone, it's Raghu Marcus, your host for another Ramdas Here and Now podcast episode. 1980. This is from, and this is different because it's uh, it's actually an interview that a scientist named Amrit Goswami did, Amrit Goswami that he did in 1980. I don't know if it must have been a radio show or something. And they talked about... Uh, so this is, for all you guys and gals out there who are into this stuff that like, His Holiness has been, been doing a lot of work on and uh, many other... Richie Davidson, Danny Goldman, around the intersection of science and spirituality. And Ramdas actually, his last... Uh, thing that he used to express to me of something he hadn't done was to put together a uh, a, a seminar or a retreat featuring people on both sides of those equations uh, so this represents the in i mean in there's a lot of complex stuff going on here between i mean amrit uh, is a uh, uh, um, a physicist, I believe, and Ramdas, of course, expressing the spiritual side. So, it's got some complexity to it, but it's—I uh, mean—and I'm not one with a big scientific brain that just doesn't go there for me. But I—I uh, I learned some new things and picked up. Can you, you know, after all these years uh, of listening to Ramdas? I mean. Uh, that were uh, very edifying of uh, this whole thing around science and spirituality. Uh, It's really great. So uh, let's just point out a couple of things. So the paradigms that they're talking about, creating a shift that would integrate theories, integrate the schism that we have around psychology and East and West, uh behaviorism and humanism um, and when we see what it says, when we see the paradox within any system, it forces us up to a level up a level in consciousness, Ramda says into a uh, and, and it gets us into a meta system that's much more embracing. and they really break through in this in this talk uh, as, as far as I can see uh, this concept that it's it's got to be one thing or the other. Uh, and the way these two basic uh, approaches can feed each other rather than prove each other wrong in some way, um, yeah. So uh, say when c- c- when seeking truth, we have to look for a meta system that incorporates both systems. So then, and this is interesting because they talk about uh, well, Ramdas talks about how he would t- he he was talking to a scientist named Feynman, a long time ago. And he was telling of the miracles of Ninkaroli Baba. One of them was the ability to be manifest that body in two places at once. And Feynman said, and and lots of people listening to this, and, you know, I mean, it's not possible. He said, it's not possible. And that's, you know, that kind of thing totally undermines the system. So uh, the... the 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 issue is, if in science, if you go for um, moving beyond the confines of the system that you have, that you of the belief system, or a, a scientific system that you have great trust in, and moving beyond that, you open up a Pandora's box, and then you're no longer a scientific observer. As soon as you get subjective. And that is uh, much of what they were talking about in terms of scientists. And, and so there was a suggestion that scientists go and study Neem Karoli Baba, study Maharaji. And, uh, and Ram Dass points out, well, that's like the elephant being studied by an ant. Uh, it's not measurable that way. It has to come from humility. And this, this is a big thing for me. It just set me off into much more than the reality of a scientist not having enough humility uh, to be able to open to the possibilities of what a being like this, you know, an enlightened being like this represents. And but that word plays into a lot of stuff for us, doesn't it? I mean, on a day-to-day basis, humility. You know, we're sure we are so cocksure that we know what reality is, and it happens all the time simple simple stuff like uh, uh, I was waiting in a parking uh, in a in a line getting ready to park going to an event a week ago and something was happening where the line kept getting greater for for some reason that I could not fathom and of course was a little agitated by it. and then I saw something happen where uh, what I thought was that the ticket taker was being inefficient in his or her performance, shall we say. (laughs) That doesn't really say what I was thinking. Anyhow, it turned out to be completely false. It was a total projection, just little stupid things like that, that we, we just have no idea, right? So, Amit Goswami said, in order to really get into this, you know, venturing beyond our box. Scientists, in particular, scientists, have to become disciples. What he really means is they had to be using their body as a laboratory for whatever they were trying to find. And and then he he says to Ramdas, you know, you were studying Maharaji behaviorally, <laughs> and wasn't that true? We used to look at everything to see. This was like looking at some, you know going to the zoo and seeing an animal you've never seen or heard of in your entire life and watching it, oh, wow, it does this, it does that. I mean, we did that, as crazy as that sounds, because it was so extraordinary. I mean, that was just one aspect of what we were doing. Um, What else did they talk about? Um, Oh, there's a great thing around Jung. And his eulogy that he did at Richard Wilhelm event, who translated the I Ching and brought it back, you know. And the, Ram Dass was saying, he yeah, he brought that back in it in his knowing, and I mean, not in his knowing, in his being, in his bloodstream, not in his knowing. So again, this whole thing of our dependence, you know, on our dualistic mind, it has so much power. We just get sucked into it, right, and not you know and not allowing for going beyond it because it takes us out of the realm of comfort in thinking we know what reality is so um i love this from from goswami in the new paradigm it must encompass both the causal element of nature with the acausal aspect you know, that they can, they can become, they are complementary a- aspects of reality. I think this is probably the most important thing that I picked up on in the whole thing. So when you listen to that, you know, tell me if I'm right. Because um, he says, perhaps the miracle is not as unusual as we presume them to be. Right? And causal, meaning everything has a cause. It, it, it explains phenomena, cause and effect. A-causal, there's no explanation. How do they fit together? Perhaps you know, and and if they do, perhaps it's not that weird to encounter a miracle, you know. Um, And there's some. This guy is really smart. This Goswami guy, as well as our Ramdas, so it's wonderful, wonderful um, conversation. It's a real conversation. It includes talking about meditation compared to psychedelics and what happens, you know, in in the whole uh, within one system of how that works on the cortex and all of that. It's really also fascinating. And uh, and I love at the end he says, "If science could replicate transcendence, then we'd be in business." Huh. Uh, it's a great talk. Again, this is uh, from. Can I get the exact date? Yes. May 10th, 1980 in Eugene, Oregon. It says interviewed by Amrit Goswami, Goswami. Somehow I think it's Amen. I don't know. Somebody help me on that. All right, this is Raghu and Ramdas here and now. And go to um uh, <laughs> bnbhere.nownetwork.com and catch all of the wonderful podcasts that we have up there, Um, including, and not the least of which, is Krishna Das, is Jack Hornfield, is Joseph Goldstein, is Sharon Salzberg, is Mind Rolling that I do, is uh, Chris Grosso. Um, We have quite... A, uh, quite a great group now, don't we? It's unbelievable. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, it's, of course, the podcast network is growing leaps and bounds. I had to be this commercial for that. but um, So it's taking a lot more people to put this stuff together. Anybody who out there feels like they can, be great to uh, any any help, any support, donation, or anything to be here now, network is well appreciated. And I won't say anything more, and I'll see you next week on Ramdas Here and Now.
0: I'm speaking with Ramdas, who was born an American and became a uh, staunch psychologist of the regular style. Behaviorist, but then he went to India and um, met his guru. He came back and now he calls himself a spiritual teacher. To make the cycle complete, I am Amit Goswami, who was born in India in a spiritual family, came over here and became a staunch physicist, complete supporter of the scientific paradigm that we have today. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an auspicious union? It's a nice cycle. Uh, Let's continue with that thought of of paradigms. Um, In academic circles, there's a lot of talk about paradigm shift. Paradigm meaning this over theory, super theory. The context. Right. And and that will encompass a lot of the older theories and integrate them, integrate this schism that we see in society. How do you, you talk about schism very often and integration in your own way. How do you see the schism and integration that you see in the society and, and want to solve that in some to some extent in your own way? How do you see that and the academic paradigm shift that people in the academia are talking about? How do you see the relationship? Uh,
2: the shifts, you're talking about integrating in a way, East and West?
0: Yes. You're talking
2: about those two paradigms?
0: East and West, uh, psychology and physics, um, behaviorism and humanism.
2: Yeah. Well, it, it seems to me that we, uh, when we face a paradox within any system, it forces us up a level of consciousness into a, a meta-system that is more embracing. And uh, it feels to me like that a lot of the um, when we've come to the interfaces, the interfaces have forced somebody who is, um, uh, somebody who is determined to seek truth, to look for some kind of meta system which incorporates both things, some broader paradigm. And it feels to me like, for example, um, um, holography is an example of a reaching for a paradigm that will incorporate disparate bits of information across systems. That would be one example. Yes. Um, it feels to me like um, <clears throat> what, um, there are a lot of places where the the broader paradigm hasn't appeared yet. Uh, I mean, I, in your field, I, which is presumptuous of me to talk about it, but in your field at the edge where uh, you get down into quanta of energy and you can't decide whether they're form or not form, you're getting perilously close to a, an Eastern model about the nature of existence. And yet, to buy that model is a little premature for Western phys- physics, is that?
0: Yes, uh, uh, actually, that, 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 that is very close to truth. Um, we have this, this quantum of energy. Sometimes we call them electrons, sometimes we call them photons, and so forth. And their behavior seems to indicate a rather mystical contact between them. Like, there is a theorem now in physics which is called Bell's theorem because physicist John Bell discovered it. It has just put the entire physics arena in a sort of complete chaos because nobody understands the meaning of it, the implication of it. What is happening is that two electrons can talk to each other, figuratively speaking, at a distance. How do they know? Mm -hmm. How do they know about each other at distance? Because if you... If you are a scientist and believe Einstein's relativity, then such communication is impossible if occurring simultaneously. Yeah. But somehow the electrons are communicating. So maybe the electrons are communicating through what uh, Carl Jung used to call collective consciousness.
2: I love when the edge gets pushed that way and you're forced to examine other models. Uh, I met um, a man, I think his name was Feynman. I think he's a Nobel Prize winner in yes. physics. At John Lilly's house, and uh, he was t- we. I was telling him about my guru, and I kept telling him these stories about uh, miracles, and he kept saying, "Oh, that's very interesting. Oh, that's very. Oh, I can understand that." And he could get, he could do fine up to the point where I said that Maharaji appeared in two places simultaneously, and he said, "Well, that's not possible." I said, "Well, why did you accept everything up until then, and you won't accept that?" He said, "Because I'm a physicist," and he said, "To believe that a thing can be in two places at once." undermines the basic uh, tenets of my, of my whole system. I said, well, that's your problem, isn't it? (laughs) Because he did appear in two places. Now what are we going to do? And there is a point where you have to either, which what Carl Jung did, you either have to stop and say, I can go no farther remaining with my system. So I must stay with my system rather than going further or you open Pandora's box and walk out, and then you're no longer the the scientific observer. That's part of the choice you have to make.
0: Or or you can stay with it and and keep an open mind and do whatever you can to extend the paradigm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, It seems that you have been with a person who have been like our electrons in some way, because electrons are a causal. We have known that since 1930s, actually. Quantum mechanics is a theory which indeed puts the electrons quite respectfully in their accepts them in their causality, so yeah. to say. And here we are with 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 gurus, whom also we are forced to accept in their causal behavior. Yeah. But of course, the problem that people have is that there are only few of these gurus. Mm. So for electrons, we can we can always <laughs> <laughs> plenty of <them>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I don't know that. Uh... I don't know
2: that we are ready for them anyway, or that we would know what to do about them. It's interesting, I, uh, I've i often been approached by, when my guru was in his body prior to 1973, I've been approached by Western scientists who have said, we would like to go and study your guru. Now, to me, uh, I just, every time I think of that, I almost laugh inside because my guru, for him, to be studied, it's like, it's somehow in my mind, it's like an elephant being studied by an ant. I would like to honor Western science, but I realize that it isn't measurable that way. It has to come from a great deal more humility than that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's lacking in Western science at this point to really open to what that phenomenon
0: is of, of a guru in these. Yes, I'll, I'll put it in a slightly different way, which is that in order to go into this venture, a scientist has to become Scientists really have to become yeah. disciples. Yeah. That is, they have to start to use their body as a laboratory yeah. of whatever they're trying to find. And, and in that place, probably like if you were studying, you know, if you were a physicist or the scientist who wanted to study Mahaharaji, you could, right? And you did to some mm-hmm. extent. Your I did. books make it very clear that, exactly. that you were studying him behaviorally. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But that if,
2: there are two interesting uh, associations to what you just said. One was, Carl Jung's eulogy of Richard Wilhelm, uh, yeah, Wilhelm, who did the I Ching, he translated the I Ching um, originally, and he went to um, another culture, and as Carl Jung pointed out, he was a, he brought the culture back in his bloodstream, in his being, not in his knowing, but his being, he became the culture itself and then came back and made that work functioned as what Carl called a Gnostic intermediary of somebody who brought who moved from one to the other. But Carl Jung then points out, but it finally drove him insane because he couldn't, he couldn't integrate the two systems. And uh, it is insane as long as you try to hold to one or the other. You've got to let go of both in order to become something that is more than either of them. That's the yes. first point. The other one was that I remember when... Um, um, uh, I was at Harvard, and um, we were being criticized for our research with uh, uh, chemicals that alter consciousness. And um, the criticism was from a behaviorist point of view, that we weren't being sufficiently uh, stringent in our behaviorist criteria. And uh, Tim, Larry, my partner at that time, argued that we were doing traditional introspection research, which had a history in psychology, although it's not in vogue in the behaviorist Zeitgeist. And um, I remember at that point, I realized my predicament and I said to uh, the group, I'm making a different decision. I'm not pleading that I am any longer functioning in the formal role of being a scientist. I am going to go the journey and what will come out will come out. I must be now considered a datum, right? And you may study me if you choose, but I can't keep one foot in the door to come back and keep observing what's happening to me. I've got to let it happen and then hope it comes out. I may just go insane, I don't know, but I've got to keep going. And that was really a basic
0: decision in my life, as I recall. You decided to be what quantum mechanics tells us all the time, that is there is no division between subjects and objects, why try? (laughs) Exactly, why
2: try, why try? That the dualistic mind is a limiting factor in our understanding the universe, even though it seems to have tremendous power. It's like prehensile ability. It gives us a lot of power, yes. but it's only one kind of power. And it's a very trivial kind of power in a certain way in the larger domain of power. The question is how we can use intuitive understanding in any systematic fashion.
0: That's right. And, and then the question will, bigger question will come that if we could, then would we get into powers from which there is no return and new catastrophe starts happening? Yeah. Um, I have heard this worry that that if the miraculous were accepted and people could do them, then what would happen to the world as we see it?
2: Well, it's an interesting one because uh, uh, hopefully one would expect that wisdom and compassion went along with cities or powers. In, in fact, it doesn't necessarily happen that way, and there have been examples like Rasputin historically of people who have gained great cities or great spiritual powers but did not have a compassion. A Ravana, the one that... um, Ravana, yes, in Ramayana. Ramayana. Um, And uh, I don't think that, I think that if if those powers were available without surrendering one's ego or a sense of separateness, they would be misused. And
0: I think the game is beautifully designed that they really aren't available to most people. And perhaps that's where the a-causality comes in. I mean, you cannot really make to order a miracle. A miracle just happens. Yeah. There's always that um, what Carl Jung used to call synchronous element exactly. in the happening of a miracle. Exactly. And what's interesting about that is that in the in the west
2: when people conceive of people doing miracles like I watched recently a film on television about uh, Christ and it was a beautifully done film, uh, an Italian film and in when they showed Christ doing a miracle, he was always somebody who was like, he was about to do the miracle, you know, and then he did the miracle and you could see him thinking about the miracle. Around Maharaji, I could see that isn't the way it is at all. Miracles just happened around him. He Uh didn't do anything. The whole idea of somebody who does a miracle is exactly our Western projection into
0: it, which Mm -hmm. is fun to think about. Yes, uh, also I I can't help think of the autobiography of a yogi, where lots of miracles are talked about. But oftentimes, these gurus would say, well, let's see what can be done about curing this boy who is dying of cholera. I cannot do anything. I'll tell his doctor to give him this medicine. Yeah. So the doctor gives the medicine, and, and yeah, of course the idea is that, exactly. well, The doctor's medicine cured him. I understand. (laughs) So, somehow the causality and and the predicament that you have to preserve causality is is, is very much into the mind of these enlightened gurus. They know. Well, I I get a sense that,
2: um, as well as I could uh, try to project in and grasp, um, that Maharaji um, was so much in harmony with the laws of the universe, the way form manifested, that there were certain ways in which his powers wouldn't manifest in certain ways they would they would only manifest within dharma within within the laws of the uh, that were harmonious you know
0: the difference is that he knew the laws and he and was the
2: law he was he, the, he law. Was the okay. law see okay. it's, it's again the knowing yes. is gone too it's not like he yes, said sir. well i won't cure that person because you'd say well why does he cure that person and not that person no and then you, sometimes he give a reason, but the reason always seemed like the reason for the mind of the other person. The reason didn't seem like the reason why he did that. Like there's a story of um, uh, a man coming, his wife is sick, and he gives him a stick, and he says, put it under her pillow. And she gets better, and then uh, they look, and the stick is gone, and they come back, and they say, uh, Maharaji, where's the stick? And he says, what do you want the stick for? You've got your wife. And... Then another man says, look, I have an old mother that's sick, give me a stick. And he says, she's all let her die. Now, under those conditions, he seems to be giving a reason. Old people can die, young people, you know, things like that. But that didn't follow either. Mm -hmm. I, I was trying in this book I just did, Miracle of Love, which is just a lot of stories about Maharaji, to convey that you couldn't build any one system. If you said, well, he rationally did this, therefore, and extrapolated out, he would
0: block you at the next moment. Right. Yeah, and that would be causal behavior. And then, exactly. then, of course, the miracle could not be explained at all. Exactly. In, in fact, um, if one takes a position like this, and we are as scientists are very close to take a position, some of us, that the new paradigm must encompass both the causal element of nature yeah. with the causal element yeah. and put both of them in their proper place and say that, well, these are complementary aspects of mm. reality. Reality can manifest itself in, in causal what we see and very used to. Yeah. But also the echads, which are not used to what happens all the time. We're just not used to it, we don't perceive them. But perhaps the miracle is not as unusual as we perceive them to be. No, it feels to me that
2: once you move outside in your awareness of time and space, for example, as your reference point, and then come back into time and space to look, they all seem perfectly natural within an, another form of law. They don't seem natural when you're trying to use a causal linear analytic form to understand them. Mm -hmm. It's just a different place of looking and then it seems like nothing special. And you could feel from Maharaji that it didn't seem like anything special. But the question is, can the human intellect really
0: handle an a-causal system? Um, That is a very good question. In mathematics, they are now finding out that there are some equations which drive themselves. Uh, in the sense that you do not anticipate the result. Whatever the mathematics will give you, it will give it. And, and so that has that a causal element. I sort of feel uh, that it may have the a causal element. You know, there, there, is a, there, is a, there is a very interesting belief among physicists that God must be a mathematician. And, um, huh. of course, uh, you know, the belief yeah. is that mathematics transcends reason. I understand and does mathematics transcends our causal system yeah. to that extent. So, if mathematics someday are able to is able to um, handle a causality, I would not be too surprised. Somehow,
2: Did, can you see that it does that? I mean, not yet. It, not no, yet. definitely
0: not yet. Uh, but you know, this, this this mathematics is is invented to uh, because it's still conceptual symbology, yes. and
2: therefore it still is all mediated through, uh, or at least perceived or formulated through
0: the mind. Yes. Through the intellect,
2: through yes. what's usually called the left hemisphere.
0: Yet, if we are uh, part of one cosmic consciousness, then it makes sense. I mean, as, as you say very clearly, that, that, the, that the one becomes two in order to look at itself. Yeah. And in the state of two, it can look, and it can look at all the reality. Yeah. And that includes what its unitive aspect is. So from that point of view, uh, I would not be too surprised if uh. If an unpredicted mathematics could handle this. And so long as it's unpredictive, I'm not surprised. Unpredictive. Unpredictive. Oh, that's a nice one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, all all, all you yeah. have, you know, all Maharaj yeah. is telling us and you have been telling us is, yeah. is that we must admit a causal. Uh, yeah. But this mathematics is a causal yeah. in that sense. If it turns out to be what I think it might turn out <clears throat> to
2: be. But uh, it's interesting about the word a predictive because when you are. Um, outside of time and space, you uh, definitely understand that the future already exists.
0: Now, how do you deal with the concept of a predictive in that? And also, oh, I don't know. Um, Also, the the, the tremendous difficulty that all of us have in understanding nonlinear time, the entire past, present, future existing together. That's um that by itself is a tremendous mysticism. Yeah. I'm speaking with Ramdas, and um, we are in the middle of a very interesting concept, mm. nonlinear time, past, present, and future all existing together. Mm. What do you what do you ever how do you think of that? If you, do you ever think of it or just do you just experience it? It cannot be thought of, it seems like.
2: It um it feels as if um like when Einstein said. I didn't arrive at my understanding of the fundamental laws through my rational mind. It seems to me what he's describing is a transcendent state in which he moves outside of the matrix of time and space into a more gestalt perception of the universe, which has in it past, present, and future. And then he comes back into his rational linear analytic mind and his training as a physicist allows him to bring back from that totality some little sub-bit of information just as Bach brings it back or, you know, or is brought back in a rag or something like that. And uh, that, uh, that kind of knowledge is not something you can know. It's something you can be then you can only know about it as a, almost a memory.
0: It's a memory trace. You can know a little bit about it. Just yeah. witness, witness how, the, how the knowledge or wisdom gets into your being. Yeah. And, uh, and then you are aware
2: of it. it just then you're aware out. of it. Then you, it's coming out of your... That's like the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is a much lower level game than wisdom is. Wisdom is a way of being in the universe. It's subjective, if you will. It's mm-hmm. a subjective relationship. Knowledge is objective, and knowledge is really is really one step back. It's one thought away from being
0: in it, in in the universe, if you will. It's always that's where the separateness is. I mean. That's right, and and that's where that's where our feeling, basic feeling, uh, comes from of, of integrating the paradigms. Because in physics, we have acknowledged that subject-object division does not really exist in reality. Oh,
2: yeah,
0: and therefore it is essential to mix them. But, of course, the scientist is always scared. What happens if we mix them? Shall we ever find out what truth, namely he's still thinking of objective truth, Yes, But at the same time, yes. he realizes the paradox, that there is no yeah. objective truth. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: So, knowledge now, and
2: wisdom... what does that mean? Does that mean that we have to change our, what we mean by truth? Because it seems to me that what you know with the mind is only relative truth. That's right. And that absolute truth has no form to it. That's right. You know, it is not conceivable. Absolute truth is inconceivable.
0: And the only way you can you can approach it is is by being. And and that state of being is, of course, what the Eastern practices are about, and the mystical yeah. practices are that's about. You know, that's the basic distinction between religion and science, if yes. you will. Yes. you know
2: That's why, like in Western religions, God is inconceivable. It's like not even you can't even say the name. Because you can't get to that, you can't
0: get that close. That's right. In, in your tradition, uh, did you grow up, you, you sort of grew up with that, didn't you? I mean, yes. That you cannot say the name of God. Yeah. I yeah. grew up in a, in a system uh, where, of course, God is everywhere, and, and whatever you are saying, you are saying God. Yes. Most Hindu names well, are then, God oh, that's
2: saying the same thing. It's just saying it from a different place. <laughs> <Yes>. It's just <laughs> saying it has no unique name. That's right. Because the minute you
0: categorize it as that, it isn't that. Yeah. But it's interesting how there are two ways of saying the same thing. Yeah, exactly. But both are... Doing, doing this ritual, both are excluding uh, the possibility of experiencing God in some extent. You know, uh, this brings, brings me to one, one question. Uh, in India, the system is really very elite, the, the um, spirituality bit. And people accept it. But in reality, they know that only a few people are going to be knowing God. Mm. And then they accept it, and that yeah. helps them with their karma. But they never ventured to be yeah, it. I understand. Now in science, of course, we do things very democratically. Very democratically. That is, that is, if if, if we have a realization, then we want it for everybody, mm-hmm. like electricity.
2: Yeah. How does well, that fit in, in? Well, America? the eastern uh, the the security that comes with with an, a, a a paradigm that involves reincarnation makes it altogether different. Because you understand that your turn will come and that you're playing your part. And that, like, I knew, I noticed in the 1960s when we first, like, started to work with psychedelic chemicals, we expected every one of us to get enlightened at any second, right? Because that was the Western achievement. You can take it, take it, grab it, and become that. And every time, the question was whether it would happen at, you know, 10 or on Tuesday or when it would happen. And then we got a little, and I go to India, and I'd noticed that none of the people that were around my guru ever talked about when they would get enlightened. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand it. Wasn't everybody wanting to get enlightened? And then I realized that time wasn't the dimension any longer. That's right. More was whether you were doing your part in the incarnation. And that's taken me years to learn. That is a certain humility that has come out of a deeper understanding of the timeless quality of time,
0: uh, in which time is a, is a, is a uh, subsystem. That's right, an existence where, where you live in space-time, yet there is a reality where space and time doesn't mean a thing. Exactly, and that's why, even though the Eastern system looks elitist, within the
2: Western system, it isn't basically elitist. It's just as democratic. It's just a timing matter. Everybody is doing their part. You know, and if you were a good sweeper, a dharmic sweeper, you are doing the same as a king is doing who's doing the king's dharma. You know, in the West, everybody wants to be the king. uh, But in the East, everybody doesn't want to be the king.
0: Everybody wants to do the dharma. Beautifully put. So what you're saying is that in space, the discrimination that becomes is one becomes divided into many. And in time, what happens is, is this what you just described, that not only one becomes many, but also the the many plays different roles. Different roles across time. Across yeah. time. yeah And then when you it, it all gets telescoped
2: back in, and then you're outside of time and space, like I would look, I'd see my guru looking at me, and he'd say things to me like, um, he'd say Lincoln was a good president, I'd say yes. He'd say uh, yes, because he knew Christ was president, he was only acting president, I'd say yes. He'd say, did you know Lincoln? And I'd say, did I know Lincoln? You know, like Lincoln lived in 1860, you know. Or he'd look at me and sometimes he'd he'd say to me, uh, "Samad Guru Ram Now, Samad Guru Ram lived in 1600. That's right. You know, and I began to think, is this man crazy? Or is it another possibility that he is telescoping incarnation? He's standing back where not only your past, present, and future in this life, but lives are all there. And he's just seeing... The scope, and then for us to impose upon him the limits of our own sense information, is
0: exactly where the whole thing becomes absurd. Particularly when you realize that that not only just a series of lives, but every life that ever happened is all our own all, incarnations. It's all—it's all us. All, us. all <laughs> us. And that's uh, Jung
2: was approaching that with his collective unconscious. The concept of collective unconscious—that's as close as we could get in the West with that idea.
0: Actually, uh, I have a feeling that we probably will be going further with it. I mean, you know, I mean there is this branch of transpersonal psychology, which yeah. uh, you have been associated with it to some extent. I, I, have, I have seen your name in the journal's advisory board. It used to be, but yeah. not anymore. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about transpersonal psychology? Do you think that, that it is possible to have an academic discipline which will be able to talk about religion in a scientific uh, academic manner?
2: Boy, that's a delicate question. Uh, Finally, these academicians must must turn the light back in on themselves. And finally, how much they're going to find out is how deeply they have done their own inner work. And the problem is that as long as you keep the traditional Western metaphor of science, it is still studying something out there without the, even though we now are sophisticated enough to say that the experimenter enters into the experiment, you know, we haven't gotten to the point where you start to manipulate the experimenter in order to change the perceptual viewpoint. And that's really what transpersonal psychology has got to struggle with. And most of the people that are in transpersonal psychology do not work very hard on themselves. They use the language of the East and of the mystic tradition and they are trying to deal with these issues but they are primarily defining themselves as social scientists, not as students of God or as inner working people. It's it's a delicate one because there are some that are doing that, but generally
0: that's what's required. Yes, I completely agree with you. I mean, it really has to be that that scientists got to start meditating. Exactly. And um, <laughs> whatever what it, what comes up. Out yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's the bottom line of the whole game. Yes.
0: Now. Uh, <laughs> In in meditation, the the problem that that scientists, would, again, you know, Western in the in the in the sense of being a Western scientist, it's, it's it's really from the outset doesn't seem to be a very difficult proposition. Not even a very time uh, taking too much time type right. proposition. I mean, after all, I have seen physicists doing one experiment for ten years. Yeah. And he can do that. And, yeah. and why shouldn't he be able to meditate for yeah. ten years and, and and see what happens? But yet. There's tremendous reluctance. Well, because it's
2: always meditation has always been seen by the West as that kind of mushy, mystical uh, domain. And it's interesting because if you take, for example, the Theravadan Buddhist tradition and the uh, Tripitaka and the uh, the basic texts of the Theravadan tradition and the um, uh, Vedantic traditions, uh, and, uh, uh, Vedic prescriptions, you see an exquisitely articulated psychology of the human mind that we in the West don't have anything compared to it in terms of the subtlety. I mean, the, uh, The uh, Vasudhi of Southern Buddhism is one of the most exquisite maps of the human thinking process that I've ever seen. And we don't have anything remotely as sophisticated as that. This just has not been studied. And once one approaches meditation in that kind of systematic way of understanding that through meditation, you can change the point from which you are perceiving time and space to the point where you can stand behind your own thought forms and watch the thoughts appear, exist, and disappear, which is extraordinary. Like the Buddha describes the last 34 mind moments before he goes into nirvana, all right? Those mind moments are happening at the rate of about one trillion per blink of an eye is the rough estimate, and yet he's describing 34 of them discreetly, one by one. Now how could he do that if he didn't get outside of time so that the minutia, the microsystem, he could he could spread it out and look at each one discreetly?
0: We can't conceive of that because of our identification with our thinking process. Yes, and also the identification occurs in sometimes very articulate manner. Uh, you know, we are talking about this going out of time, and, and ultimately it boils down to going out of the body, going out going out in a way which is called Yeah. And if you look at the human mind from the artificial intelligence point of view, which a lot of people, a lot of very intelligent people are doing, you know, the computer model of human, yeah. human being. In the computer model, of course, it's all a delusion that you go out or you transcend. Of course. Um, there is an example which has been given in one of the books, which is of the Escher picture, where a uh, dragon is trying to go out of a page and it, it makes uh, a hole and, and and it goes out and comes back into a hole yet anybody who looks at the dragon's picture knows that the dragon is not getting anywhere it's, it's a delusion it's beautiful so yeah. they say well that's what happens to people who talk about transcendence you aren't really going anywhere but you're sure. just deluding
2: sure that's exactly for example freud i used to teach freud and freud said uh, all religion and spiritual concerns are merely sublimated sexuality they're merely displaced sexuality and you can see like within the chakra system that every chakra has its own reality and that you try to explain some phenomenon that's associated with another chakra you reduce it to within that chakra system or that subsystem to explain. So you
0: are stuck with the with the phenomena that 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 you start with because your method of studying... You only see yourself
2: out there, you only see yourself, (laughs) you know, so you got to change yourself to see something else. And that's what the Western scientist isn't quite ready to buy yet. Because we are attached to our senses and our thinking mind. And those are the attachments that ultimately stop the process. Mm -hmm. We are attached to those as our vehicles for knowing. And we have to let go of those vehicles. And we yet haven't got the respect for what is other than that, which we might call awareness or Atman or whatever
0: you want to call it. What my hope is that if we could make some scientific quote-unquote advancement in the process by which transcendence takes place. Uh, I say process because the exact, what happens in transcendence is something that you can only be, but the process can be studied. For example, there is some neurochemical, um, neuropharmacological studies which has now been able to differentiate between the meditative processes versus the processes that happen in drug experience. For example, in... um, under LSD, what happens is that the brain becomes hyper aroused because of some neurochemicals. That yeah, that you the would synapse
2: use. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's
0: right. Yeah, and 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 in meditation, on the other hand, the brain is hypo aroused uh, because of uh, again a neurochemical.
2: Well, all the shifts in like alpha rhythms, the increase in alpha and things like that with meditation, all the bio, the uh, EEG. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all of it raises some interesting issues about whether these are correlates, which is always the issue about uh, measurement, whether these are correlates of the phenomenon or these are the phenomenon. Because I really am not very impressed with the fact that the brain has much to do with with the higher meditative
0: state. I have no doubt that these are correlates. Uh, but let me raise an interesting uh, interesting question because you are one of the people who have experience with meditation as well as the drag. Mm. Now, the brain goes to two very different processes. That is when you meditate, you slow down the mind to some extent. Whereas when you are into drug experience, then the mind is actually acting very fast. Mm-hmm. So perhaps this is an approach of the consciousness or ultimate consciousness that, that we talk about uh, in two different ways. Yeah. And uh, there is actually one suggestion, a man named Roland, Roland, uh, Roland Fisher, I think, has actually suggested that a rupture can take place uh. from samadhi into this state of tremendous hyperarousal. Uh-huh. And another man has come very close to it, and I'll just add to it and say it, that that is the process of raising the kundalini. Uh. Now, in your experience, when, when, when you, you have described it, I think in, in um, Only Dance There Is, that suddenly your breath disappeared and you you felt energetic. Now, this process, does that even remotely corresponds to going from a state of tranquility into a tremendously aroused state?
2: It certainly could. It's interesting. It, it, um, most of the, uh, are you measuring the arousal in uh, biochemical terms or in electrical potential terms uh, in the brain? or what?
0: In both, both terms.
2: See, because, uh, the, uh, the subjective psychological experience with uh, with psychotropic, with chemicals that alter consciousness, like LSD, is a um, speeding up of thought process in the initial stages, until it gets to a point where it breaks. There's a almost a discontinu, there's a discontinuous moment, and then you enter into a space in which it's a cosmic awareness, in which there's no thought anymore. In the early stages, which is might be what's measured most of the time there is an agitation until you break out of, it's a breaking out of something. And you have felt that break? Yes. Oh, I I felt that discontinuity every time that has happened. It gets very subtle, but I can still experience it.
0: How about coming from Samadhi into Kundalini? Was that the same kind of break? Now, um... The kundalini felt
2: very much more. Um, I guess I would. I had much more of an energy metaphor rather than a thought metaphor about the kundalini. Yes,
0: Use you your see? own metaphor,
2: please. Huh? Use yes, your own metaphor. Because what I well what I experienced was the cessation of breath and the quieting of the mind and the quieting of the mind and the quieting of the mind and then this incredible force starts at the base of the spine, which is just a force that isn't. It isn't a human force, it's just a vast force. And it consumes everything into itself, is what I experienced. Now, the thoughts that go along with that, see the exquisite part about that whole particular yoga, of uh, hatha yoga, of of, um, pranayama, is that for that process to continue, you have to keep your mind fixed at a certain point. The minute you start to think about what's happening, you immediately stop so that uh my awareness at that time was very little connected with anything that was going on other than just keeping my awareness at the bottom of my spine it's only in memory that i remember this vast emotion you know i'd love to deal with the situation i don't feel we're
0: dealing with it uh, you know exactly enough yet well i don't know if i have the picture exact exactly enough yet yeah. uh but but what i feel is that these things can be valuable tools for, for seeing the differences, Yeah. how we approach uh, the ultimate consciousness, if we do, in, from, from two different poles, uh, mm-hmm. from, from Samadhi, which has been a very different practice, yeah. and uh, drug experiences, which really are very You could different. just say that
2: both of them just break one out of one set. Uh, Mm -hmm. about reality.
0: Yes, actually in physics, you know, we call it phase transition. Yeah, but that's just a different name It's a breaking of set and it's a discontinuous. Yeah, uh, exactly. And you can come at it either way, either
2: through too much or too little. Uh,
0: Let's talk about yourself a little bit because I think that you um, put all this in some perspective. You you played a very important role at just the right time. I'll I'll tell you a personal um, anecdote. I was teaching a class on um, time and Einstein's relativity and then I was going over these concepts of how you define the here now point and I was doing something which is rather mathematical and um, interesting geometrically, a thing called light cone and I was putting in the center of it, I was putting the here now point, I was saying that well, that's where it all is and then here's the past and here's the future. And then I went away from that a little bit and talked about nonlinear concepts of time too. Uh, At the end of the class, a student came to me and said, what is this here now point? So I tried to answer this way. I quoted T.S. Eliot, still point, but finally I didn't get anywhere. Then finally I said, look, there is a guy named Ramdas who has written a book, Be Here Now.
1: Read that, maybe you'll get somewhere with it. (laughs) That's lovely.
0: So you started that in America. Do you see that? That do you feel that 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 was your role? That that to, to just do that uh, at that time of the uh, time of the events.
2: You know, it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to because the history so much means his story. It's sort of the story that somebody projects backwards, and you can write it a dozen different ways. It felt to me like um, Maharaji was that was Maharaji's grace that was doing that because. Um, that book, Be Here Now, which uh, m- which really millions of people have been touched by in that kind of realm of consciousness about shifting their perspective about time, um, that came out of, as far as I can understand it, really one blessing out of his, uh, one thought form out of him. When in India he said, uh, uh, one of them, Haridas came to me one day and he said, Maharaji he wrote on a slate, Maharaji just sent his blessings for your book. And I said, What book? He said, Whatever book you're writing. I said, I'm not writing any book. And that book turned out to be Be Here Now. And um, it feels to me like it was it, it interesting, it almost served as a Bible at a, in the 60s for a certain kind of spiritual group, a, a subgroup. Uh, I feel very little personal identity with it. I feel very much like I was just a middleman for something to happen in that. You know? Very much less personal. I think it did play an interesting role. I think that that and a lot of other books with it. I mean, it's presumptuous to think that any one book did anything. Um, plus, television and transportation and our changes in mobility and our changes. There was it was so overdetermined. The rock and roll movement. All of this had the effect of changing our social psychological domain about time and space into relative time and space in the same way that Einstein did to Newton. You know? mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and it was a beautiful transformation. It was a total transformation to a new awareness. Yeah, exactly. Right
2: there.
0: exactly. We saw, we, we had the opportunity
2: to see a shift in, in human awareness in, yes. on a large scale. Yes. And it's interesting because it's so now been incorporated into the culture, nobody even notices that it happened. It's just built in now that we all and that's part of why morality is changing. It's part of why everything's changing. Mm-hmm. It's changing around that shift about what reality is.
0: That's right. We are we are much more here now today than much we ever much we're. Much, much
2: more. Much more. Yeah.
0: Now this, this this brings about a, a rather interesting um, subject of evolution. We were talking about nonlinear time. And uh, in nonlinear time, past, present, and future all occurs together, right? Mm. So how can one define the concept of evolution? You know, when we talk about here now in societal terms, we often get carried away and think, well, we are evolving towards a new consciousness. Mm. Yet, I find something inherently disturbing in thinking about evolution because everything is happening always, already. Evolution is as much
2: an illusion as anything else. Precisely. And it's within the illusion, it's like a greater illusion within the elusive system, the illusory system, that there is movement from a point to another point or something's happening. And within the something's happening, you can get into vaster and vaster, what I call astral melodrama, which has in it evolution. And finally, at the ultimate point of evolution, you realize nothing happened. You know, and that they, the ultimate final point is the awakening
0: out of the dream of Maya, or the dream of... of uh... mm-hmm. So in that sense, evolution never never really happens. Actually, i would be a little more specific, uh, in fact. Uh, you know, very great thinkers like Sri Aurobindo, or uh, yeah. um science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke, they all somehow conceptualize this collective nirvana of everybody in the yeah. universe, all together. Melting into one part of mm-hmm. uh, great ultimate consciousness. Yeah, well, that already is somewhere. It's just
2: that we are busy being our storyline, so we aren't fully in it. But that's who we all already are. That's the we all already are the Buddha or the Buddha mind or the Christ consciousness.
0: But that is not an end of something. I and mean, there is no end, and there no is end. no beginning. There's no
2: end, and there's even the concept of end and beginning is a hype.
0: Right.